Welcome to Grit, Real Stories of Recovery. My name is Paul, and I'll be your host. Please note that this podcast is uncensored and may contain material that is not suitable for all audiences. I'd like to welcome today Brandon Bishop. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today and share your story of recovery. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always uh, a pleasure and an honor to be able to talk about my recovery. So I appreciate you asking. Thank you. Well, great. Thanks. Let's, um, let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your upbringing, your life as a kid, your home, school, that sort of thing that led up to the beginning of your first experimentation with drugs or alcohol. Um, well, I born and raised here in Colorado, grew up in a loving family, um, a religious family. My grandfather was a pastor. My father also was a pastor. But the funny part is, is I'm gay. <laughs> so I always say God has a sense of humor. <laughs> so let me ask you, did you know you were gay from a very young age or maybe what age? You know, I... No, I didn't. I, it wasn't until I was probably closer to 18, 19, 20 that I realized I had an attraction to men. Um, before that, I just felt different. I didn't know what or why, but uh, I just didn't, wasn't interested in the same things uh, as far as like, dating women and stuff like that, that, you know, the people closest to me were, or that I was supposed to be doing, you know, as a young person, it just didn't quite click that way for me, you know, but again, like back when, as a young person, especially as a kid, I didn't know that that is why I felt different. Um, I think growing up in a church community, you have loving people around you, um, a lot. And so that was, that was really nice, um, growing up with community, growing up with family, but you know, there's the part of the, that is as well is I think there's a lot of, um, messaging that happens, um, in religion of there's a lot of shame and, um, guilt and uh, expectations. expectations of how one is supposed to be. And, you know, that for a young person is, is hard, you know, because I was always trying to, like, live up to this standard that was unachievable and unattainable for, I think, most any human being. <laughs> and so... I remember at a certain point, you know, you're called like bad enough. Uh, You're being a bad kid. You're being a bad whatever. Um, I was still getting the attention. So I was just like, well, fine. I'll just get the attention for being bad then. Sure. (laughs) You know, it was like, that's what, that's who I am. That's who you've told me I'm going to be. Well, I'll show you. (laughs) Um, And so that's when, you know, relationships with 
specifically my dad started getting harder, uh, you know, him being a pastor and me. How old were you at that time? Um, I would say teens, you know, and again, kind of normal teenage behavior right. as well as pushing back against authority and testing boundaries. And so, yeah, it just started getting the relationship between my dad and I started getting harder. Um, and I think in that I started acting out more as well, um, and seeking ways to be able to act out also. Right. But by and large, you would say you had a, and I hate to use this word, quote unquote, normal, loving home environment. There wasn't any abuse or violence or drinking and using in the home that uh, propagated your drug use? No, I will say growing with some like spiritual understanding, I was spanked as a kid. I think corporal punishment was acceptable in that day and age. Yep. That was my experience. Yeah. However, um, I've come to see that as a kind of abuse. I think hitting anybody <laughs> is harmful to them. And so I can see how that caused damage. Um, even though my parents at the time, I would say they were, they believed they were doing it out of love that still had an effect on me. Um, I will also say growing up in a religious family as a gay person has, you know, some people would name that like uh, religious trauma. And so that also like play, played a part in me needing to feel differently than I felt. Um, the pain, the shame, the anger, uh, guilt that I felt, um, at a certain point, I just needed to not feel those things. Right. Or feel differently. So when was the first time you started using and why do you think that was? You know, it, it's, I think it's pretty typical for, at least for kids, uh, around um, where I grew up in Parker, you know, it was actually like, I call Audrey my second mom. She was like my mom's best friend growing up. Um, she allowed us to drink one night. Um, she wanted us to kind of like have the experience, but in a safe space. And in a lot of ways, like I appreciated that. You know, because like, let's be honest, kids are going to drink and do drugs um, for the most part, not everybody, but I was going to experiment either way. So Audrey let us drink one night and um, so was this something you had planned? Because uh, my experience was there was just something when I was 13 years old that made me want to experiment with right? Something that was mind altering to feel different. And I don't know what that was that made me do that. I've come to learn later that it was the disease of addiction, but was this something you had ramped up to and planned or did you just show up there and everybody was like, Hey, we're going to drink tonight. Uh, hard to remember the specifics, but 
I do remember as a young person, like always being very intrigued by substances. I was never one that was afraid of alcohol and drugs. I wanted to try any and all of them as quickly as possible. And so to have the opportunity presented in like a quote unquote safe space, I was all for it for sure. And there was no like hesitation. And so the, I think the biggest thing that jumps out at me from that experience was that we were all drinking, right? There was me, my sister, Curtis and Andrea, my closest friends growing up. And then Audrey. And how old were you? Uh, around 16. They all had a beer. However, like I took a shot of Southern Comfort and I kept going back and getting more and more and more. And they all just had their beer. And so I never understood what was happening there, but that was like my attic being switched on. And there was no like, should I or shouldn't I? It was, it was uh, uh, like I was powerless. I couldn't help but go back. Right. There was no question. <laughs> there never was right. with my drinking or drugging. No. <laughs> so what did you feel like? What was that like? How, how did you feel? What did you do? What was your experience? I just remember like take, it took all cares away. I didn't necessarily feel a lot. It was more that I didn't feel. I didn't feel fear. I didn't feel guilt. I didn't, it was kind of more of like a carefree, but also in a way of like, you know, I, I don't care <laughs> about anything. <laughs> right. So that was, you know, that's. So like the sense of freedom. Freedom. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Um, just yeah. Carefree freedom. And there is some like euphoria in it all as well. You know, I think that's why we drink <laughs> is because there is a euphoric feeling to it. And I wanted more. <laughs> I wanted more euphoria. So then what did your using look like for the next few years? Well, so from there, it, def it was not easy for me to get access to drugs or alcohol. So it was really sporadic, but in all that time, even though I, I wasn't necessarily drinking or drugging a lot, I, that was always like a focus. Like, how am I going, how are we, me and my friends going to get pot or alcohol? For me specifically, it was very important that that happened. And again, like it wasn't really frequent, but it was a regular occurrence for me, specifically marijuana, because it was the easiest to get access to. And so it was kind of like whenever, however I could, I definitely was like seeking more of the drugs, the alcohol. Right. Was there ever a period when you, and I'm assuming it's when you moved out of your parents' house, that your drinking and using was able to happen regularly, freely, and began ramping up? 
Yes. Uh, so after I graduated from high school, I moved to New York City. I was going to school out there and... You know, it's much easier to get your hands on on alcohol in New York. And there was a bar that would let us in underage. And so we would go regularly there. And I remember like Long Island iced teas were $6. And they freehand poured them. So they were very strong. And I drank those because they had the most liquor in them. And I knew that. I knew that they were the strongest drink. And so I would take enough money. I, well, I would, however much money I took that night, that's how much money I was going to be spending on Long Island iced teas. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, like it just got a lot easier to drink when I wanted to. It was also like, we were in college. A lot of people were doing that. So it was normal. It was normal. Like that was just what you did on the weekends. Like you, you went to the bar or smoked marijuana in your dorm with your friends or, you know, at that time, some use of like ecstasy, uh, stuff like that, more like club, club drugs came into the picture as well. But for me, it was always like alcohol was the easiest and the quickest to get me to the point to where I want it to be, which right. was that carefree, I don't have any feelings, euphoric feeling. Yeah. Wow. And so then did you do that throughout college? Did you graduate college? Did you start escalating during college? What did that, what did those years look like? Yeah, so I did that throughout my first two years at FIT and ended up dropping most of my classes. That's the first time that I can remember alcohol having side effects other than just a hangover the day after. I started feeling more like disappointed and ashamed of my behavior at that time because of drinking so much that I couldn't attend class. And then that just kind of snowballed. So then I would skip class, but then I'd start lying to my friends and pretending that I had gone to class. But again, like I just, we would drink regularly. So that gave me the relief from any of that shame or guilt that I was feeling. And I wouldn't say it necessarily progressed because we were just doing it regularly, you know. Um, for me, whenever I drank, I drank to get drunk. Uh, I didn't, there was no stopping point. So it was just more at that time, like pretty consistent. And because my friends were doing it as well, it was easy to chalk it up to being young and having fun kind of validated and justified it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What exactly. Was, what was one of the craziest things you did during that time? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't know, like, how crazy it necessarily was. You know, we were just... Um, I hung out with a lot of pretty girls, and we were allowed to get in wherever we wanted to go. <laughs> Skip the line. Skip the line, <laughs> go to the VIP, right? At that time, it was like, 
the Yankees were winning all the World Series. They would go to this specific club. We would be able to get in. You know, I got to see a lot of celebrities and stuff like that. So, like, I thought I was, like, the shit. Right. You know what I mean? I'm getting into, like, the best club in New York City. I'm hanging out in the VIP with whomever. And... At that time, it just felt really like fun and exciting, you know? You kind of feel like you've made it. Yeah, right? exactly. I'm at the top in New York City. Exactly, which is like exactly, I didn't care about like necessarily being really successful. I wanted to like party with whomever. That was like, that was being more successful to me than like having a great job or, you know, any of the other stuff that didn't matter. I, I enjoyed partying more and that's what I wanted to do more of. Right. <laughs> so when, when did it turn for you? Like when did the consequences you described your consequence around school mm. and how that made you feel when did those consequences start becoming more frequent and worse in nature? And did your using escalate because of that? Or did you have the consequences because your using escalated? Did your using change? Well, so along that point in time, I'm going to back up for a second and say, so I guess one of the craziest things that ever happened and a consequence of my drinking was when I came out to my parents, um, I was really nervous to tell them. And so I had come home from New York for a visit, knowing that I was going to come out to them. And I got really intoxicated and ended up wrecking my mom's car. And I was on the hospital bed because I had to get some stitches in my head, crying on a hospital bed and just blurted out, Mom, I'm gay. <laughs> Were you handcuffed to the hospital bed because of a DUI? No. Um, growing up in Parker, Colorado and being a white person, um, they were pretty lenient on us and I did not, I got like slaps on the wrist, you know, time and time again, whether it be a DUI, whether it be, you know, whatever happened, I, I, again, because of my privilege of again, being a white person in Parker, Colorado, like I did not, I was not treated poorly by police officers um, and I didn't get the severe consequences outside of just the normal. This is like what is standard for sentencing for a DUI or, uh, you know, whatever other mischief I was drinking in public. Right. Um, yeah. Intoxicate like public intoxication, like the many times that I was, you know, arrested, given a ticket or whatever. But when I was back in New York City and out as gay... Well, wait um, a minute. I want to back up to yeah. how your mom reacted. So when I told my mom I was gay, uh, she the only thing she said was, I know. Um, and I was able to calm down and stop crying because it was finally out. And then she asked me if that's why I had been drinking. 
And I said, yes. Of course you were going to use that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Looking back at it now. And, and honestly, at this point, like I, I didn't, I hadn't recognized there was a problem yet. So my drinking was still in my mind, just normal young people behavior. You know, I was 23. My friends were still drinking like I, I thought my friends were drinking like I was drinking. And it was, it was true. Like I drank because I was nervous to come out, but I also like, there are other reasons I drank. <laughs> and then I went home and told my dad and, you know, he was just said, all I know is you're my son and I love you. Um, so that must've been difficult. Huh? Yeah. It was really like, um, I don't think most people understand the fear of telling your family something like that, uh, specifically when there are many kids, even still today, whose families um, disown them, who kick them out of the house, who, uh, you know, if nothing else, um, accept them begrudgingly, not wholly as who they are. Did you feel like your parents accepted you wholly? As best they could. Okay. Um, I think it takes time. It even it took, it's taken this long for me to accept myself wholly as a person now. Um, and so in the beginning, I will say there was there was acceptance, but there was not understanding. Right. So did you feel at that time like you kind of got away with your drunk driving thing because you had been able to drop this big bomb on them? Totally. Yeah. It was all like a great cover, right? Like, I don't even think, honestly, I was charged with anything by the police. So it was all, it's like a funny story, right? Right, because you totally got away with it. I totally got away with it, and... So then what did it look like after that, right? You Did you just pick back up where you left off? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I was went back to New York City because I was just home on a, on a visit, and, you know, at this time, because I had come out, also I had, like come out to myself pretty much before then I was going out even more so you know several nights a week three four five I mean I'm sure there were weeks I went out every night of the week um and drinking and whatever else was on the table offered up like sure why not like know? what um I you know at that time <laughs> I remember somebody giving me some meth but they ha it was in like a powder form and so I thought it was cocaine and marijuana, ecstasy, I'd say cocaine. Those were like the mainstays. It was there was always going to be alcohol, but whatever else was just kind of like icing on the cake. So sure. whoever had whatever, yes, that was the answer. There was no questioning. Right, I'm in. Yeah, okay. exactly. So then did your using change because you now felt 
comfortable with yourself? Well, I think that's the myth is that because I'm out of the closet now, I'm comfortable with myself. Right. You know, it's just now people know. Now people know that I'm gay. And so at that time in, you know, at that age, still really early in my 20s, I was still exploring and figuring out who I was. Um, And a big part of that and a big part that I wanted to be of that was the fun party, you know, going out, getting in wherever I want to, uh, hanging out with whomever I want to. um, And then telling the stories about it Yes, exactly. Like it's all fun and exciting and like you're in the city and something new and fun happens every night. And so, yeah, at that time it was still my drinking and using, I, I, couldn't see any issues with it because I was having fun. It was a good time. You know, I had friends. Yeah, it hadn't really gotten scary yet. And when did it change, right? I I think I'd ask you this a few minutes ago. When did it go from being fun to not being fun? Well, I, that's when I started losing more jobs and uh, living in New York City is very expensive. <laughs> and Did you drop out of school? Yes, I had dropped out of school again for the second time and working mostly retail jobs. A lot of them I would leave just because I wasn't progressing in the company like I thought I should be. <laughs> they didn't recognize my talents. Of you course know? <laughs> they did. Um, but then I started getting fired from jobs uh, for drinking, whether that be on the job, whether that be coming in to work hungover. Missing work. Missing work, uh, all those things. Like that's when, you know, I really started having more trouble because I was drinking and using more frequently that I couldn't maintain a job which then like led me to not being able to maintain housing. And, you know, when you're living in New York City and you're like housing insecurity, it's like pretty scary. There's not a lot of options or I didn't know, I should say I didn't know of options out there for me. And so always having that instability in my life, it caused a lot of fear. You know, because there was there was no stability. I couldn't rely on myself. Uh, I couldn't rely on work because I would, you know, lose jobs and then housing as well. Am I going to be able to make rent? Am I going to be able to, you know, make it to work? All of those sorts of things. And they really started to wear on me. And... That's when I decided like it was probably time to leave New York City. And so I did a geographic. I had come home again to visit and I never went back. I just left all of my stuff in New York City. By that point, I didn't have a lot. Right. <laughs> I basically just had clothing. I, I had been living at somebody's house who just let me stay there rent free. And so I moved back to Denver or to Parker to be, to have a safe space to live. 
And you live with your parents at first? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Back to the parents' basement, you know. Uh, probably I was around 26 or 27 at this time. Um, so, yeah, I moved back home. Because I was living at home, I think I tempered my drinking some. Because, again, I didn't want my parents to see how much I was drinking. At this point in time, I also started getting sick. And I didn't know exactly what it was. I also didn't have health insurance. So it was like, well, what? I don't know what to do. And so I went to the doctor and ended up testing positive for HIV. Um, and so... So then let me ask you a question. And it'll back up kind of to your New York wild days. As a part of your drinking and using, were you having a lot of sex with different people, right? And just because you had very low inhibitions and you were drunk? Or were you just so happy that you were out that you were experimenting or some combination thereof? Totally. You know, I'm a combination. I think part of it is like, when you're drinking and using, like I was so myopic, I could only see what was happening right in that moment. Mm -hmm. So there was no think future thinking. It was, what do I want to do right now? Um, then when you're put in very sexually charged environments in that state of mind, then that is what like my brain went to was sex. So, yes, that led to having many sexual partners. Um, I, you know, would be waking up in random apartments around New York City and having to ask what borough I was in and what train I could take to get back to Queens or wherever I was living in New York City at the time. And so part of that, I think, was seeking validation, like validation sure. of who I am. Also proving masculinity. Um, look, uh, how many people want to have sex with me? Right. Um, that must mean I'm more masculine. And, and then just normal also like at that time, having a lot of hormones and craving sex and sure. So it was kind of like a perfect storm for being very promiscuous. Right. So you go to the doctor, you find out you're HIV positive, and what happens? Well, then I had to, I was put on medication. Luckily, by that point, HIV had become very manageable. Uh, it wasn't no longer a death sentence, but adjusting to the medication uh, was really hard on my body. Um, I ended up losing a ton of weight. I was about a little over 100 pounds and I'm almost 6'2". Um, so it took a long time for my body to get back to a place where I could even hold a job. Did your drinking and using change during that time? I wasn't doing any of that. So you, in essence, had stopped. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't like because I wanted to. It was more, I was very sick. Like I was, honestly, I was on death's door. 
a normal person has like 700 T cells, I had 36. And had I gotten the flu, I could have died at that time. You know, it was my health was that in that precarious uh, uh, a situation. So for me, like it was probably at least a six month process of getting to a place where I even had enough strength to do much of anything. So there wasn't a lot of drinking or drugging during that time. But as soon as I got a job and... Was, and this is once you were healthy again. Yeah, once I was more healthy, um, was able to work again. You know, I, my drinking picked right back up to where it was before. Where you were drinking every day, going out with friends. Maybe not the same club scene, but... Totally. Seeking that... Oh, Yeah. Yeah, there was, again, like I hadn't identified drinking being a problem yet or drinking and drugs being a problem yet. So anytime that I could drink, I would. Anytime that I could go out, I would. Yeah, there was no question. And so then what did that look like as you kind of reintegrated to the world? Did your drinking progress? Did things start getting worse did you, was there ever a point when you were like, I shouldn't be doing this? I, you know, it took a while still after becoming healthy again and starting to drink and drug. After I got healthy, I got a job and then was able to get an apartment on my own. Because while I was sick, I was staying with my parents. I had been living with my parents for probably two years. Then I got sick. And then I, when I was able to get healthy again, got a job moved out and I think within six months I was being evicted from my apartment for not paying rent because and it was all because I was spending all of my money on drugs and alcohol so it ramped up quickly yeah like once I was on my own and there was nobody watching me it was like well then why not drink whenever and so that's when I started also like going to work drunk or, you know, that's when it really became like also planning. How am I going to get the drugs and alcohol that I need? Planning when the liquor store was closing. So that meant which train I had to take to get home by this time to still make it to the liquor store so that I can have enough booze to get through the night. Um, And at that point I was drinking a bottle of vodka to myself every night. And so what were some of the consequences? You talked about losing your apartment. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other things that got you to that point where you said, uh, or at least the first time you said, I need to stop? You know, I, I had some DUIs along the way, but I think the hardest part was keeping losing, like losing jobs that I really cared about, that I actually wanted And then, you know, losing the apartment, I think at that time, like I had alienated a lot of my friends. So I was really lonely. It was a lot of like drinking at home alone. And that's when it was really interesting. Just like it finally hit me. Like I could see the addiction cycle and how my drinking led to me losing a job, led to me like losing housing, led to me, it was like, it's crazy. It happened over and over and over again, but it took me 
you know, till it took me to recognize the pattern. Right. You finally started connecting the dots. Yes, exactly. So at that point, did you try to stop? Yeah. I mean, and granted there were bits of like trying to control my drinking before that. I was trying like every solution possible so that I didn't have to stop. But at that point, when I was being evicted from my apartment and really had no other options, that's when I was like, this is really a problem. If I don't stop this, this is going to keep happening. But also at the time I didn't, I didn't understand like how my, like, how am I supposed to go to rehab? Like I can't afford like passages Malibu or any of those. Which is so funny that you think you're going to passages. <laughs> well, right? that you think you're, but that you think you can afford any rehab, you know, not having a job, not having insurance, not having any stability in your life. Like how am I supposed to afford rehab? And I reached out to, cause I knew I needed help. And I reached out to my friend who was a doctor and he told me I should go to the emergency room and ask for a mental health check. And because I did that, then they started showing me like different uh, programs that I could have access to where I could finally get some help with my alcoholism. And so while you were there, what did that decision process look like? Were you finally ready to say, all right, I'm going to take action? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I didn't want to keep living life the way that I was like, I was, it was going nowhere. Do you remember that moment of clarity? Was there a point in time that you could point to and say that was it? Yeah. I was in bed in the apartment that I was being evicted from finally connected the dots of the cycle and I was like I'm done like I can't at this point like I was you know waking up in terror every day like how am I gonna get enough booze how am I gonna get enough money to pay my rent how am I gonna you know and so it was just like I can't I can't take this anymore I can't keep living like this so you went to the hospital, you got a mental welfare check, and they referred you to some different options. And what did you do from there? So I went to like a detox facility that I thought was free, but it didn't end up being that way. But the nurses helped me get a grant. After that, like I didn't have a place to live. So they gave me some resources of places to check out and I didn't want to go back to my parents' house. Like I had, I had done that enough times. Like it was finally time for me to like go like figure stuff out for myself kind of. And that's when I found out about step 13, which is what it was called back then. And so I came to step 13 and I got sober and I got a job that I enjoyed and life got better and, you know, things started turning around and I was finally kind of more living up to my potential. And what were the things that you were doing that made life get better? So honestly, like at that time, I, I didn't do anything outside of stay sober. 
And how did you stay sober? I guess that's my question. Was sure. it like force of will alone? Did you get totally. engaged in 12-step programs? Um, at the time, at step, there were meetings that we went to. You know, I started, I think that was the main thing were meetings. But then when I went out and got an apartment of my own, I didn't stay connected to any of that stuff. And so eventually like the ideas came back. Like I knew I didn't want to drink cause I knew where drinking took me, but mm-hmm. maybe let's try some other things. Right. <laughs> cause those weren't my problem. Exactly. And so I, yeah, I started doing party drugs and you know, smoking marijuana pretty frequently, starting to go out to the clubs again and doing, you know, GHB, ecstasy, meth. Again, whatever anybody had, I would do. But you didn't drink. But I didn't drink, no. So I was okay, right? Because I'm not drinking, I'm okay. (laughs) Nothing to see here. But yeah, it was, again, it, it was fun for a while again. Because I, like I said, like I had at that time, I had a job that I enjoyed doing. Getting sober had afforded me a few things like the job, the apartment, stuff like that. Because I had a a stable place like step 13 at the time to rebuild my life. I was able to rebuild it to a point that like, Life was good. And that's when it was like, okay, let's try having, you know, let's try getting fucked up again. But that didn't last terribly long. (laughs) It never does. No, it doesn't. And so I went from, you know, going out just on weekends to going out in the middle of the week, smoking marijuana every day. But really what where it ended up for me was using meth every day. I got fired from the job that I loved for being high on the job. My life started to tear, everything that I had built up that I enjoyed was starting to crumble again. Um, My relationships with my family were crumbling again. And that's when I started using needles. And, you know, from then on, it's just like, it goes downhill fast got to another breaking point. Uh, One night I was wandering the streets. It was like the first night that I wasn't going to be able to manipulate like someone's bed for the night or, you know, whatever else I could do to like scam a roof over my head for that night. Again, like I was wandering the streets. I knew I didn't want to sleep on the street that night. And so I went to the mental health crisis center. They said, talk to me for a little bit. And then we're like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what are my options? And they're like, well, you can go to a homeless shelter or you can go to detox. And all that time, like I had kept planning on getting sober again because like life was real shitty once again. And I knew I could get sober because I had gotten sober. Right. So... I was like, well, like, guess we're going to detox. And from there is when, again, my life, like your life gets <laughs> dramatically better uh, when you're not sticking needles in your arms <laughs> every day. 
And that was also when, again, another moment of clarity. Like I knew I could get sober, but I knew I had done some things wrong before. I promised myself that I was going to do everything I didn't do before. And what did that look like? So for me, that meant getting a sponsor and joining a 12-step fellowship and getting really involved in that. I found somebody who had what I wanted and I asked that person to be my sponsor. And then they started meeting with me regularly to help me go through the steps. And where were you living at the time? So you get out of detox and where do you go? Back to step Denver. <laughs> <laughs> of course you did. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, again, I'm really grateful to have a place where you can kind of put your life back together and there's caring support around you to help you do that. But really like the work I had to do was my own work. Right. The 12 step work. So talk more about that. So you get into the work with a sponsor. What other things were you doing differently? You said, I'm going to do these things that I didn't do before. I, at the time, what that looked like was finding meetings that I enjoyed going to, getting really involved with the meetings. I had a service position there. Like I said, I met with my sponsor, but also, you know, with working the 12 steps, it's like you get to like fully admit what the effect that drugs and alcohol are having on you. And you like see it on paper, what's going on. And through the 12 steps also, like I got to really look at my, my resentments, my fears, my, my sex history and the role that I played in everything because beforehand it was always somebody else's problem. You know, the world was out to get me or there just wasn't a problem. You know, it was like nothing to see here. So being able to like really see like, oh, I have a part in this. And because I can see I have a part in this, then there's a solution because I I have a way out. I, I can take action. And because of that, then I got to go to people that I've, you know, caused harm, people, institutions, and uh, make things right so that I don't have, what do they call that? All these skeletons in the closet waiting for me, waiting to destroy me. Right. This is what it felt like, you know. I was running from all of these things that I had done and to finally look at them, face them, and then go and, you know, make them right. I didn't have all of these like fears and skeletons that I was running from anymore. Right. So in doing that process, how did your life change and what did it look like over that period? Yeah. I, you know, I, I was able to get jobs that I enjoy. I'm a hairstylist and I was able to, you know, build up a clientele and able to find housing. One of my favorite parts of all of this is the, I I now live in the neighborhood that I was wandering the night that I got sober. (laughs) (laughs) The night that I went to the mental health crisis center, like I was wandering that alley and now I live 
in a house on that street. And I've lived there coming up on four years now. And it's it's a place that I kind of the, the kind of place I always wanted to live, but never really believed that I would be able to live. Right. Um, because my, you know, I couldn't afford or didn't have enough stability to do that. Or just couldn't get your shit together couldn't, to yeah, actually exactly. even make the effort. Exactly. Exactly. You know, some family relationships have come back. And what does that look like? Well, that's actually been a struggle recently is like life happens. Like we go through ups and downs with, with family. So there was a lot of repair that happened with me making amends to my family. Through the 12 steps. Through process. the 12 steps. Yeah. But I'm recognizing that, yeah, there was just a, a fissure that happened in the family and I had to create space for myself so that I could heal some things within me so that I can have a more healthy relationship with my family that's not so codependent. But again, because I have support, um, I have a program of recovery, like I get to do those things and I still get to show up in a, in a way that is it within my integrity with my family. In an authentic way. Yes, and exactly. Is your family supportive of this process? I think it's been hard for everybody. I don't think we saw this coming. We're just now starting to kind of mend some fences. So it takes some time. Yeah, but I think all in all, we, we all want what's best for each other. But sometimes that means separation is good for a while. So that, again, we can get back to a place where we have healthier connections. Right. But it sounds like, by and large, your life is so much different than it was. How do you feel about yourself and about the life you're living now? Well, how I feel, I feel proud of the things that I've been able to accomplish. I feel feel good. The fact that like I show up to work, I show up to work on time. I do a really good job. Um, that brings me pride and a sense of purpose. I also have the opportunity to do a lot of work in my community. That's very meaningful. And I think just having like, not having all of that shame, guilt and fear weighing me down as much. It, it's kind of like, that freedom that I was seeking through drugs and alcohol, like I feel that through healthy behaviors. <laughs> but you actually found in recovery. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's, mm. that's just amazing. So even though your life is different now, even though you are working a program of recovery and rebuilt everything and there's a part of you that intrinsically knows I can't use drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think about using drugs and alcohol? Oh, for sure. I don't think that's ever not going to be a thing. For one, like, <laughs> look at our world. <laughs> I, I would venture to guess there's more bars in Denver than any other business. <laughs> I think or that's that the case and, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. In any, it's it's a part of the culture, and so. 
that being said, it's going to, the idea is going to come into my head, but the thought that it follows it immediately is like, you know where that leads, right? You know, like there, I've built up substantial evidence of how drugs and alcohol ruin my life. You know, I don't need any more proof. <laughs> We're good there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Which is great. It, it, you know, what it sounds like is you continue to work your program to keep that disease in remission so that when that thought pops up, you have coping mechanisms with which to deal with that. Yeah, I think that's really important for me is to stay connected to recovery, to a support system, staying connected to places that remind me of what happens when I drink and drug. We get to see regularly what the effects of drug and out al- drugs and alcohol in recovery as well as new people come in and are mm-hmm. getting sober. Yep. Which is a really good reminder of how how bad it gets. Cause I forget. And that it's waiting for us out there if we decide we want to go back. Totally. So what advice would you have for someone that may be suffering from their addiction or a family member or friend that might be listening that has a loved one that's suffering from this disease? I think for for the person who's out there suffering, I would say ask for help. It's the hardest thing you'll ever have to do, but it's also the most rewarding thing you can do. And know that like life gets better and you can feel differently than you do now without drugs and alcohol. I'd say for the families, as hard as it sounds is let them hit bottom. You know, the most loving thing you can do is take a step back and allow whatever needs to happen to happen. And you can do that in a loving way. You know, I think that's part of loving yourself as well. And so the best thing you can do is to not, what's that term? Enable. Enable them. Yeah. Like let that, let their addiction take them to uh to a, a bottom to a place where they have no choice but to get help place where they become willing yes <laughs> yeah, that was exactly my experience with my family as hard as it was for them uh they just cut me off yeah yeah and same with mine like at a certain point like it does become too hard on the family and so to let the person who is the addict get to that point quicker. (laughs) Right. Because we do when we don't have help. (laughs) Yes, when there are no more resources, it gets bad quickly. Yeah. And we become very willing to do something differently. Right. (laughs) Brandon, I can't say thank you enough for taking the time to be so transparent and honest and share your story with us. I, I it's meant a lot to me, and I hope that it is meaningful to the folks that are listening. Thank you very, very much. Oh, absolutely. Happy to do it. It's an honor. This podcast is being brought to you by Step Denver Men's Residential Addiction Recovery Program. Step Denver gives men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome the consequences of addiction 
through a program based on sobriety, work, accountability, and community. For more information, visit stepdenver.org.